This is Eli Lake, and you're listening to The Re-Education. The topic of today's show is the Russian soul and what it means for the war in Ukraine. My guest is Fred Kagan, who is the director of the Critical Threats Project at the American Enterprise Institute. Earlier this month marked the 104th anniversary of the end of the Romanov dynasty in Russia. On July 18th, 1918, it was a grisly affair. The year before, Tsar Nicholas abdicated his throne during the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917, and he and his family were taken to a palace outside of Moscow. By then, Russia was in the throes of a civil war, pitted the Red Communist Army against the White Tsarist Army. And as the White Army approached the castle, where the Tsar and his family were held hostage, the Bolsheviks met privately and sentenced the former Tsar and his entire family to death. Only the Romanovs didn't know it. When the local authorities escorted the family and a few of their loyal servants to a cellar room in the castle, they were told they were posing for a photograph. They were not photographed. Instead, a group of 12 or 13 eager Bolshevik volunteers, heavily armed with pistols, rifles, and bayonets, some of them drunk, some of them psychotic, entered the cellar. An apparat read the sentence, and the Bolsheviks opened fire. There was a catch. The youngest Romanov daughters had sewn the family's diamonds into their clothes, creating a kind of bulletproof vest, according to the historian Simon Seabag Montefiore. So the initial round of fire only wounded their limbs, but they did not die. And eventually, they had to be stabbed after watching their family murdered in this awful, gruesome cellar that turned into an abattoir. Here's Montefiore describing the gruesome aftermath. After about half an hour, 20 minutes of this absolute mayhem, during which, by the way, the executioners managed to kind of shoot each other as well and burn each other and wound each other. They were all standing, shooting over each other's ears, and half of them were deafened. Um, after all of this, as they carried out the guards, two of them sort of woke up, started coughing and spluttering, and they had to be, they finally were killed. The next three days, it took them three days to actually dispose of the bodies. So bungled, so incompetent were they. They didn't sleep for three days as they went back and forth between the woods, various places in the woods, um, to try and um, dispose the bodies in such a way that no one would ever know. Now I bring all of this up because I think it tells us something important about the Russian soul. Russia is, of course, a great culture. It has produced some of humanity's best novelists, like Gogol or Dostoevsky. Russia has given us great music, like Tchaikovsky, not to mention ballet. But if you spend any time reading Russian history, the utter cruelty of its leaders is unavoidable. This is a country that has suffered great and violent trauma again and again. Because as awful as the fate of Tsar Nicholas and his family was, and it was terrible, the Romanovs themselves were bastards. A less charitable observer than myself might say they had it coming. Peter the Great, another Romanov czar, who ended up building the city of St. Petersburg, he had his own son arrested and tortured where he was flayed with a whip fastened with barbs. He, like other czars, enjoyed humiliating and occasionally torturing dwarves for his amusement. At one point, Peter the Great, according to the great Montefiore book on the Romanovs, ordered a kind of dwarf wedding in an ice palace 
The Romanovs lived also in obscene, obscene wealth. Catherine the Great had a fleet of grand barges, each equipped with a library and an orchestra. When she traveled, her entourage included an entire portable garden that kind of came with her. Meanwhile, in the same period when Catherine the Great ruled, most Russians lived in extreme poverty. The small professional class of lawyers, doctors, and writers in in and around Moscow mainly, never really achieved the kind of political power and security of their Western peers. They were at the whim of a cruel and stupid ruling family. Now, that is the case, by the way, I should say, that for most of the Dark Ages and the Renaissance, intellectuals and artists had patrons who were members of royal families and so forth. But in Russia, there was never this kind of period where that class ended up taking political power for themselves. So the Romanovs were pretty bad. But at the same time, what replaced the czars, the Soviet Union, was worse. I recommend reading Anne Applebaum's History of the Soviet Gulags to get a full picture of the misery of life in the Soviet Union. It's not just that there was deprivation, like the Stalin-imposed famine in Ukraine. It was that at any given moment, you could be taken away from your family and sent to a labor camp. No one was safe. Neighbors were encouraged to inform on their neighbors. And if you were conscripted into the Soviet army, you were not only asked to do incredibly cruel things, like what we're seeing right now in Ukraine, but you yourself were subjected to kinds of torturous hazing. And what we're hearing here is Vera Golubeva. This is from the Atlantic's website from a few years ago. She is a survivor of one of the gulags. Her entire family endured Stalin's gulag. First they came for her father, then her mother, and then in 1943, when she was by then married and eight months pregnant, the secret police came for her. She went into labor in a prison camp and was taken to a prison hospital. She gave birth and the nurses immediately took her baby from her. Three days later, the guards returned. Her child was dead and they handed her dead child to her according to her testimony in this video, bundled up in clothes. She worked during the day and was interrogated in the evenings, which is itself a kind of torture where you are deprived of any sleep. And she was told that she could not sleep at any time, especially during the day. Her cellmate at one point gave her two matchsticks and told her to place them under her eyelids, claiming that she could sleep with her eyes open. But of course it didn't work. The matchsticks were not strong enough. For six years in the gulag, Vera's diet was rotted fish and the white worms that had infested those fish. Other inmates told her the worms were a good source of protein, so like them, she forced herself to eat them. And there are lots of other stories of how awful the gulags really were. There was a very cruel kind of punishment where in the summer months, an inmate would be tied to a pole near a fetid body of water where there were lots of mosquitoes and then spread with something all over their skin and mosquitoes would bite every inch of their body. And that was sort of par for the course in the gulag. Now Vera, interestingly enough, was never told what her crime was. She had just had to endure it for six years and live with the loss and pain of seeing her baby return to her dead. And her story is not unusual. This is why many Russians were happy in that brief moment when so Boris Yeltsin finally dissolved the evil empire and ended communist rule. 
But that brief glimmer of hope really didn't last. And there are many people who I think would persuasively argue that it was not as great as some of us would like to remember here in the West. Because after the fall of the USSR, gangsters and former functionaries of the state came in to raid what was the USSR's vast natural resources. And Russians traded the oppression of the Soviet Union for the capricious insecurity of a gangster state. Citizens who worked their lives in state-run factories couldn't get their pensions. The courts, the cops, everything was corrupted. So when Yeltsin selected at the end of the millennium a former KGB officer named Vladimir Putin to be his successor, and by the way, Putin did run an election, many Russians supported him. They voted for him. He won a fair and square election. And at least for the first six or seven years of Putin's rule, many in the West most notably George W. Bush, believed that Vladimir Putin was a Democrat and he wanted a Democratic Russia like Boris Yeltsin. Now, part of Putin's appeal to Russians was that he promised to rein in the oligarchs and he went after a few of them. He also promised a kind of prosperity in his first elections, but he hasn't been able to really deliver that to most Russians. So today, he appeals to a sense of Russia's historical greatness, if that's what you want to call it. It's impossible to tell today whether Russians really support Vladimir Putin. He's negated the last remnants of liberalism in his country, particularly after his decision to invade Ukraine for no reason earlier this year. He's made it illegal for Russians to criticize that war. But I suspect that there are millions of Russians who may on some level know how barbaric their nation's military has been to Ukraine and in Ukraine and in, in prosecuting the war, but have also come to expect it. It is a chronic condition of Russian history. And while all countries have shameful and brutal pasts, there's no denying it, Russia never had a phase, a real phase, of liberal democratic rule where the transition of power was peaceful and the rights of individuals were respected by the state, unless you count the Yeltsin interregnum. Now, this is not to say that millions of Russians would not like to live in freedom. I certainly believe they do. Rather, it's to say that Russians have learned that hope is dangerous. It's naive to expect humane and wise leadership if you're a Russian, because even after revolutions in 1917 and 1991, the new boss eventually ends up being the same as the old boss. Well, the re-education today is really lucky to have Fred Kagan, who is the director of the Critical Threats Project at the American Enterprise Institute and someone who I have relied on for many years for his expertise and wisdom when it comes to 
not just matters of statecraft, but specifically some of the military questions as, as we've covered things like the war on terror, and now we have the new war in rather for Ukraine. So thank you so much for coming on The Reeducation, Fred. Great to be with you, Eli. So let's, I want to start off by taking a little bit of a zoom out, and that is, I want to get your assessment of, at this point, what you think a victory would look like for Russia and a victory would look like for Ukraine. Well, Putin has made it clear that he has not changed his victory conditions and his victory conditions are control of all of Ukraine and the annexation of most of Ukraine into Russia. He has made that clear. His deputies have made that clear. He's not, he, he's not walked back his aims at all over the course of this war. So that's what victory looks like to him. Now that's, it's a fictional universe at this point in which Russia attains a victory like that in this war at this time. So there's a whole other longer conversation that we can have about what we think he do in to end this phase of the war. But those, that's what victory continues to look like to Putin. For the Ukrainian side, President Zelensky has also been clear that victory looks like regaining control of the territory that Ukraine had controlled as of February 23rd. 2022, and he has not expanded his war aims either. So both sides have actually not changed their war aims over the course of this conflict. But when we saw the focus of Russian forces in Donbass and eastern Ukraine, some people had interpreted that as giving up on the broader idea all, right? Some people had made that error, yes. Okay, so you see that as, a, why is that an error? Well, because Putin never said that anything like that. Okay. And because if you think about what Putin's objectives are and have been, it would not have made sense that you could argue, you could do some logic chopping with what the official Russian justification was for the invasion to begin with, but that doesn't actually get you very far because the official justification involved what the Russians called the denazification of right. the Ukrainian government, which is to say regime change in Kyiv. The aims were never confined to Donbass and they didn't change that. But subsequently in recent weeks, we've had a series of restatements by Putin and others of war aims that are total and unchanged. So I thought he had changed his military focus, which he did. Some people thought he changed his aims. I don't think there was a basis for that, but he's made it clear that he hasn't. Okay. So with that in mind, there seems to be sort of two in the West freeing analyses. Here you, and I would, I would direct our readers to read a column from Andrew Sullivan from about 50, 10 days ago that says that he's very pessimistic about the staying power of Europe in particular, especially with energy as a weapon. We just saw, again, the threat about Nord Stream 1, the pipeline that brings natural gas into Germany and how the Germans would be deprived of that, according to the latest announcement this morning, or recording this on Monday morning. And then there is the Institute for the Study of War, which is directed by, of course, your wife, Kim Kagan. And I highly recommend their daily war updates on the, the, the war in Ukraine. And they have shown that, you know, the recent, I'm going to screw up the acronym, but the recent highly mobile artillery that the U.S. has sent the Ukrainians have been very effective in hitting not just artillery and military kind of depots for the Russians behind their lines, but really forcing them at the very least to take all of these precautions to make their own offensive against civilians much harder. 
how do you come down on this? I think maybe you could argue that the both analyses are kind of looking at different things, but what is your answer to that? Is that, you know, is, 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 is Russia really winning the war? Okay. Well, there's a whole bunch of questions in there. Okay, so, look, on the issue of European staying power, I'm not optimistic or pessimistic about it. I think it's not a conversation. It, look, leaders don't make decisions in the abstract. Sure. Right. So the questions are going to be at what point are what leaders going to have to make what decisions and what is the context in which they're going to be making those decisions? And what are the concrete options that they're going to have? So this comes to the connects the questions are connected in the sense that you have to make some kind of forecast of what you think the war will look like when those decisions have to be made. And then think about what the decisions actually are. Now, concretely, the decisions are, are they going to continue sanctions or not? And if they don't continue sanctions, then are they going to, you know, one way or the other, is that going to affect the European energy markets? Right. So that's the concrete. We're talking about Europe losing its will. Primarily, we're talking about Europe losing its will to deprive it, continue depriving itself of Russian energy. Right. Right. Okay. So on the one hand, there's going to be domestic pressure to relieve that. On the other hand, the question is going to be, is the situation in Ukraine going to be such that Western leaders feel that they can lift the restrictions on their own purchases of Russian energy without fundamentally compromising commitments that they've made and their honor. And that's hard, that's hard to gauge, but it's hard for me to see a scenario in which by the fall, there is a reasonable and honorable way to justify changing the current sanctions regime. So I think that it's very likely that when these decisions have to be made in order to be meaningful, which is going to be fall, there's going to be no basis for any actual justification other than surrender to lift the fundamental sanctions. I, I don't know how different European leaders are going to handle that, but I frankly think that that's going to be a harder sell than the pessimists, as it were, right. imagine, especially if Putin continues being Putin. Right. Because we need to keep in mind that this is a guy who makes a deal to get Ukrainian grain exports out of the country and then immediately hits a grain terminal the very next day. It's extraordinary. And then they said that had nothing to do with the agreement. Right. Right. Okay. But I mean, it's just, like, no, no, okay. I mean, I mean, I mean, yeah. it is, yeah. you know, you, you believe me or your lying eyes sort of thing. Right. It, it, exactly. And so the Russians are continuing to do what the Russians are doing. So unless you imagine a fundamental change in Russian behavior for the positive, it's just very hard for me to see what the scenario is that makes it look to the key European leadership as if they can lift the sanctions and look like anything other than just surrendering completely to the Russians. And by the way, they're probably going to find it even harder because the Russians do seem to be very much on track to annex the occupied portions of Ukraine directly to Russia in September. That they're setting up for that in every possible way and they're messaging it in all kinds of ways. So how does this work, EU? The Russians annex huge new hunks of Ukraine and you lift sanctions? Right. I, you know, so I just, I think it's easy to be pessimistic about this and one should be 
because it's quite a sacrifice that the Europeans are making on behalf of their people. As it's quite a sacrifice as long as you squint and don't look at what the Ukrainian people are sacrificing. Yes. But within the context of a people not at war, it's quite a sacrifice. So it's easy to be pessimistic. But when you look at the concrete decision space that they're likely to be in, I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be harder than people imagine. And just following up on that, has the United States is, can, can export natural gas. There's a pipeline also from Israeli fields of natural gas. Are there things that, for lack of a better word, the allies or the alliance has done? We will have had nearly a year to prepare for this possibility. We made it through half of the winter, you know, this is the, when the war started, and then we are, we, we've got to prepare for this. Are there, you know, policies or, or shipments or, think, or infrastructure things in place to soften the blow? You've moved beyond the, the limits of my okay. expertise. I'm not an energy. Fair person, enough. So I don't, Fair I don't enough. Know. Okay. Let's talk to, about the Ukrainian side. We know that the more advanced weapons, by all accounts now, I mean, the Ukrainian government says it, but there's been independent reporting at this point, have been highly effective. And we also know that there doesn't seem to be any indication of a sapping of morale from the Ukrainian people or the Ukrainian military. Or let me ask that question. Has there been any indication that we've seen that the Ukrainian people or the Ukrainian military are, are growing tired of it or would, and would accept, you know, a, a, a sort of, you know, super peace kind of thing? So there are a couple of different parts to that question, Eli. One is the question of the Ukrainian will and morale, and the, and the second is the question of whether the Ukrainians are thinking about or more open to the idea of some kind of a right. of peace or a compromise or something. And the first thing that we need to keep in mind in that context is that Putin hasn't indicated any openness to any kind of compromise or negotiation short of his full demands, which I think is very important because in the West every now and then we've had discussions about on the one hand, offering Putin off ramps. On the other hand, about maybe the Ukrainians are being too intransigent. And we need to recognize that Putin has never indicated that he has any desire for any kind of off ramp or willingness to take one right. or any willingness to modify his to total demands. So he it's the, not the Ukrainians who are being intransigent, if, even if you regard it as intransigent, to demand the return of your entire country and not only part of it. Ukrainians are unquestionably suffering. Ukrainian morale, I, th I think, varies in some places. It's been low. In some places, it's been very low. In other places, it's probably okay. I can't imagine having very high morale under the kind of circumstances that Ukrainians are dealing with. But Ukrainian determination hasn't wavered. And I think, if anything, has been strengthened by, on the one hand, the, the continuation of Putin's totalist demands. Right. On the other hand, the atrocities that the Russians have committed on a vast scale, including the de deliberate targeting of residential buildings and infrastructure Constant. and various other war crimes, hospitals and children's facilities and stuff throughout occupied and unoccupied Ukraine, the deportation of many thousands of Ukrainians, including we're seeing reports now that the Russians may have been maybe deporting children and the mass rapes and, and all of those sorts of things. The, 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 the attempted siege warfare, which yeah. is itself a kind of war crime. Of right. Course. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So all of those things together are not the kinds of things that induce a population that has any choice to do anything other than continue to fight. And I think that's where the Ukrainians are right now. 
So I think the morale issue is actually a more important issue on the Russian side than it is on the Ukrainian side. And I want to now, now I want to ask you on the, on this question of the conduct of the Russian military is such that it seems bizarre that theoretically we could have a situation, you know, in some other place of the world where the Russians would be asked through the UN to contribute, say, peacekeepers that we have had had a strategy until, I mean, I hope in some ways we still do because of the negotiations over the Iran nuclear deal, where we would count on Russia to be a kind of partner with helping to, you know, revive what's known as the JCPOA. Their conduct in the war is so out of the bounds of what we would consider to be norms of the international community in 2022. How is it possible to continue to operate in an international system where Russia is considered in some ways a great power? This war, a much more massive geostrategic inflection than most people, I think, have actually internalized. Yeah. First of all, Russia's demonstrated that it isn't a great power. But I mean, in it's the, a nuclear state. You're right, but we have we you know, we're, we we have a space station program with them. We have all of these things that we developed over the course of many years, some in the Cold War and some after the Cold War, to knit Russia into the international community. Well, that's a, a yeah. responsible nation. Okay, but that's a separate question. There's the question of Russia as a responsible nation, and then there's a question of Russia as a great power. That's a fair point. And my point is that Russia's actually demonstrated that it isn't a great power. It has had it had a Potemkin military, right? that looked like it was serious but wasn't which they are which they have effectively destroyed the russians have effectively destroyed their conventional military at this point so russia is not a great power and isn't going to be a great power in the military sense for a long time it is a nuclear power and that is a very significant thing and that gives russia a seat at, at every table and and it will for as long as russia is nuclear power like this but it is not a great power. But we treat it like a great power when we ask it to broker a deal with Iran to right. get back into the nuclear agreement. So we also need to, to recognize that we, that is the other thing that has changed. Right. Russia, now part of this is just us coming to terms with reality. Right. So Russia has identified the United States and NATO as enemies for years. Correct. We. We've been confused because we haven't wanted to believe that. Right. But that's been in Russian official documents and statements for years. Right. And the Russian official doctrines and strategies have been to destroy the, what they call the unipolar world order, but which is basically the U.S. led international, you know, rules-based international sure. order and replace it with something that so they have been fundamentally seeking to destroy the order that we've been trying to knit them into. And they've been explicitly doing so for many years. Right. right. So we've finally been mugged by reality in a way, but we need to internalize the mugging. Yeah. And realize, no, no, no. Russia is not a partner with anything. Russia is not a partner with, is not a meaningful partner with us on anything. Even on the nuke deal, the Russians were very happy to facilitate what I personally think was a very bad deal that the Obama administration made with Iran. Yes. For a variety of reasons, but including that part of the Russian effort to dismantle the international order as we know it is the Russians are opposed to any kind of sanctions regime of any variety. 
and saw right. their interests served in having the sanctions on Iran dismantled both financially, but also in principle. Mm -hmm. So they were, they were, they were good with that. That worked for them. That was not help the, the, their intent in that was not to help us. Right. They, they, they worked with us on that because our interests ran with their interests on which we're going to be able to work with them. By the way, we work with the Soviet right. Union that way too. This is, I mean, even with avowed enemies that we're openly in a cold war with, on some occasions, your interests will run with theirs and you can negotiate with them and you can work with them and that's okay. And that will probably continue to be the case in certain areas of the world with the Russians. Although I think there'll be shrinking opportunities and shrinking areas in the world for that. But we mustn't mistake that, as you say, as any sort of wedge or opportunity to get Russia to be a responsible stakeholder sure. in the international order. We have to, Putin has initiated the new Cold War. Right. Okay. He initiated it with a hot war, a couple right. of hot wars, starting with the invasion of Georgia in 2008. Yes. And then the invasion of Ukraine in 2014. And now this invasion now oh, in 2022. Right. He is, yeah, you could he, argue with the irradiation of Litvinenko in London. In sure. You can point right. at, at various things, but somewhere in there, yeah, he has initiated this. We've been very slow to come to terms with it. Now we need to come to terms with it. And now we say, okay, so we're in what we desire will remain a cold war with Russia in the sense that we do not wish to fight Russia directly. Although there will, there were lots of proxy wars during the cold war, of course, and we're engaged in one now in Ukraine, but we don't want to get into a war with Russia and Russia doesn't want to get into a war with us. That continues to be true. Fine. So we're in a kind of a cold war, a very hot phase of a cold war state with Russia. Fine. It doesn't mean that we won't be able to cooperate with them on the space, space station necessarily. Mm -hmm. I don't know if we will or not, but it does mean that we should not imagine that Russia will be a constructive partner with us in salvaging an international order that they have been deliberately trying to destroy. Right. Right. We, we, we don't want Russian troops to participate in UN peacekeeping missions. Right. Okay. Now I want to ask a weird question and if, if you feel comfortable answering it, if not, we'll move on. But. Does the nature of Russia's military and its cruelty and barbarism stem in some ways from something more than just simply Putin's regime, but really maybe something about the character of Russia as a nation? And I don't mean this in an, a derogatory sense. Russia has produced wonderful literature, wonderful culture. You know, my, I'm, I'm Jewish, but my family comes from Ukraine and Russia, so I'm not making a kind of, I'm not saying something derogatory, but if you look at Russian history, you could argue that Vladimir Putin is actually one of the more humane leaders in the long run of Russian history, even though he is obviously a great fiend on the world stage today. So my question to you is, what do we learn about this connection between a national army and the character of a nation? I find myself very instinctively hostile to these kinds of discussions. Okay. Now, part of that is I mean, I just find myself hostile to sort of characterizing souls of nations in certain ways. And I know that's more of your brother's brother. game, but well, okay. <laughs> but I, I just, I'm, I'm uncomfortable. I'm thinking that. of it. Right. As a, <laughs> as a Russian historian, there's a whole, you know, bunch of narratives starting with the slave soul of Russia and the, yeah. and the whole, you know, is Russia Western or Slavophile and all of that. And I'm very familiar with it. Literature is fascinating, but at the end of the day, I find it to be not dispositive of anything. I was asking it more, uh, not no, in no, that I, sense. No, I was no, asking I, about the I, nature I of Russian leadership and and the fact that it's been a cruel country and the leaders have been so cruel. I, That's what I, I, yeah. I, I know. I know. I, again, I think it's, it's a little bit harder to make the case that 
the pre-Soviet leadership was particularly more cruel than leadership in lots of other countries. Fair. And it was pretty that cruel. It, at different times, it was differentially cruel in different ways, as, yeah. as with most of its peers, honestly. So I don't, I don't want to turn this into a long durée discussion of, of, you know, Russian culture and so on. I think the key point is that the key, the point that I'm willing to grant on this, but I'm going to have, we have a big caveat here and say that okay. even despite this caveat, I think or that even despite what I'm about to grant you, I actually think this has very little to do with what's going on in Ukraine right okay. now. But the caveat is that the Soviet Union was a particularly brutalizing society and it was a deliberately brutalizing society. And the Soviets, you know, deliberately brutalized their people, all of the Russian leaders. And Putin is, in some respects, the epitome of the survivor of of that kind of brutalized society. And which he encapsulates in his, in the expression, weakness Mm -hmm. is lethal. Okay. So there is something that comes not out of the Russian soul, particularly, but out of the Soviet experience that if you emerged in a certain way from that experience, then you emerged with the idea that certain kinds of brutalization are what is necessary to rule, to lead, to govern, and all of that kind of stuff. Now, I should point out that there were lots of Russians who emerged from that experience in the 90s and the aughts who were very happy to discard all of that and try to build a free and a free market society and economy and have elections and have civil society and so on and so on. So there was nothing inevitable. And Yeltsin, of course, himself tried to do that and didn't brutalize Russia in the 90s when he took power, but tried to liberalize it. And he was even more of a product of the Soviet experience than Putin was. Right. So there's, I want to say there's nothing inevitable about the fact that a society with that history produces a leader like this, who then runs things the way that Putin has. I. I don't know if I would trust any public opinion polling in Russia, given the current state of repression. So I'm not trying to say that, but it does seem that there are a number of Russians who do not really care that their country, you know, is doing this to, you know, their, their cousins, the Ukrainian people. Look, you can't, maybe it's hard. I mean, I know that really they need to, okay. You really yeah. need to stop with, you can't trust public opinion polling in Russia at this point. Fair enough. You just can't. Okay. Now, this is, I mean, so the question of how Russians feel about what's going on in Ukraine is, first of all, complexified by the question of what do they know about what's going on in Ukraine? Okay. Because Putin has been very heavily filtering that. And the Ukrainians have been doing something interesting, which is they have been having prisoners of war call their families and tell them what they've been doing. And the families have in some cases responded saying, no, you haven't been doing that. Okay. Okay. Because there is a, there are a number of dynamics at play here that make it very hard to figure out how people actually feel about something. Okay. That's a fair, okay. that's a totally right. fair point. And what you're talking about here. And so let me just take a minute to tell you what I think is actually the biggest problem that we have with Russia in some respects over the long term. Okay. The Russians are committing, under the orders of Putin and their leadership, outrageous atrocities, war crimes, and I suspect things that rise to the level of crimes against humanity. Yeah. Okay. They are doing that in a completely unprovoked, unjust invasion of a peaceful state that posed no threat to them. Those are all, those are all facts. Right. Now, 
the Russian people were not told any of that. Of course, they weren't even told that they were going to go to war. They were told that they were not going to go to war. Fact, and they're told the, the, the troops on the eve of invasion thought it was an, uh, an exercise. Some, right. Yeah. 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 And beyond that, the Russian people still don't know that they're at war because Putin refuses to call it a war. It's a special military operation. Sure. So there is a lot of confusion that Putin has injected into his own information space about what's actually going on here. But I want to refer you to one of the most outstanding books, sort of mass human psychology, as well as a major historical event by my colleague at AEI, Leon Aron, called Roads to the Temple, about the process of perestroika and how it led to the collapse of the Soviet Union and how it operated in the minds of the Soviet people. Right. And among the many brilliant things that Leon does in that book is to explain the shock that Soviet citizens experienced as they learned about what the Soviet Union had done to its own people, mm -hmm. even though many of them had lived through it, but they hadn't understood the scale of it. Right. They hadn't understood the full horror of it. They had their own family stories of it, but they didn't realize they weren't special. Was, right. They weren't special right. and that it was deliberately evil and yeah. so on. And it generated a whole bunch of very complicated emotions, including a kind of, on the one hand, collective survivor's guilt. Right. And very concrete guilt, actually, because all of those who survived benefited in some ways from the horrors that had been perpetrated, mm -hmm. even if their families suffered. So it, the, the psychodynamics of internalizing what their country had been doing mm. to its own people was a psychic shock. And Leon really goes through all of the ways in which they, Russians, that Soviet people had to reckon with this right. in the 80s, which has interesting implications for why they feel the way they do about what's going on now in various different ways, which we could, which we could get to. They're going to have to go through a similar process mm -hmm. with this war. Yeah. And with what Putin has done generally, but with this war in particular. That process always begins with a journey of discovery about what actually happened. Right. What did we actually do? Mm -hmm. And who ordered it? And was it intentional? And how bad was it? That's going, and they haven't, Russians have not even begun that journey because Putin is still very busily tightening down all the clamps on the information space, chasing yes. everything to prevent them from understanding what is going on and what is being done in their name. And it's just asking them straightforwardly, do you support a war with Ukraine that NATO has provoked by this and that and the other thing, yeah. to which the answer is, yeah, you know, a lot of them say yes. Yeah, no, I, I, I grant all that. So, but there were still lots of millions of Russians after Perestroika, after Yeltsin, who voted for communist nostalgia parties that they were sure sure and there's there's of course they're always well yes of course and there are there are lots of reasons for that and there are lots of people who actively support putin and there are lots of russians i'm sure who would continue to support putin even if they knew yeah what it's doing and we in fact we read and at isw we read and report on some of these guys who are talking very loudly about the fact that putin isn't being brutal enough and and i understand all of that but your, your question was, is there something sort of uniquely Russian or unusually Russian about this? And I would say, look, I, I, I don't know. At what point did 
German support for Hitler and the Nazi movement collapse? At what point were there no Germans who were, at what point short of the final fall, you know, Hitler's suicide and full occupation of Germany, were there no Germans who supported the Nazi party or no Japanese who supported the, you know, the, the, the war? I mean, right. populations don't work like that. There's always a core of people who remain diehard and faithful to the end. Right. And, and, and we know from, from, from Solzhenitsyn and, and, and Sharansky that there were double thinkers and, and yeah. all of that. I think that in America, even though we are experiencing a lot of things right now that, you know, are not great and we feel like maybe the country is in great shape, we have a kind of expectation at the end of the day that our government can't do certain things to us. Mm -hmm. And in Western Europe, there is a kind of expectation that like, okay, we understand that, you know, it, it, it varies, but there's a sort of expectation that there will be a kind of respect for the individual right. I think there's a question among the Russians. Good soul. Russians, Russians who I think would agree with us that this war is terrible or when they learn all the facts. But there is an explanation. What do you expect? Don't be so naive. This is just how it is. And I'm saying that that's a theme that comes in, I think, before this, before the 1917 revolution. I think it's something that is part of, you know, if you read the great Russian writers, that this is a thing is that there's a largely kind of expectation that life is nasty and cruel and that okay. leaders are corrupt. Okay, that's fine. I, I got, you know, social Darwinism was, you know, reached a high pitch in German thought before World War One. Yep. And with the, with the notion that war was to be sought and embraced because it would separate those worthy of survival from those not. And that was before Hitler was born and it was before the the, you know, honest, I think I, well, I'm not I, trying to, I'm not trying to resolve Putin. This, these strands of sort of this kind of thinking run through lots of societies at different times. They don't run through Western liberal democracies. Right. And I'm absolutely prepared to defend that principle, but I'm not prepared to defend the principle that, first of all, I'm not prepared to. Well, nobody's, I'm not saying that Russia can never be a liberal democracy. I want to make that very clear. Yeah. I'm arguing instead that the experience of Russians through the years has been that their governments always lie. Their governments are cruel. Sure. Yeah. And that's, that's what it, I'm look, trying to get that, at. So my, my friend and colleague at ISW, Natalia Bugayova, has also done a lot of good work laying out the changing value propositions, as she puts it, that Putin has offered his people over the years. And here, I think I'm just, I, I'm, I'm always just allergic to these cultural arguments. Okay. No, no, no. I, I that's just, why I like, I love, I love that we're the historic, like, you know, and I, that's I, good. The yeah, specifics yeah. Are, are, I think are all. So Russians, even, because in order to understand why you, why Russians accepted Putin, you also have to understand the disappointment of Russians in the 1990s. Sure. And it wasn't just that the, I mean, the economy collapsed in a way that most Americans, I mean, I was there in 1995. It was unbelievable watching what was going on. Right. And especially for Muscovites who were not used to that kind of thing. So, I mean, it's hard for us to imagine the economic shock and horror that right. Russians lived through in the 1990s. But what you also, what we also have to understand is that, and Leon really gets this poignantly, the Russian sort of a, a Russian position on the end of the Cold War was we recognized and accepted our own crimes of our own volition. We didn't lose a war. Mm -hmm. Owen invaded us. We were not compelled to do this. Of our own volition and as a people, 
we came to recognize the evils that had been done by our leadership and in our name, and we rejected that. And we accepted some pretty horrible consequences for ourselves, unforced by anybody else. Mm -hmm. And we should have been rewarded for that by the mm -hmm. world. And instead of that, so the Russian narrative goes, we got nothing. Right. We got no help. We got no assistance. We got no, res we were disrespected. Nobody took us seriously. And basically we were simply punished again for having punished ourselves for what our forefathers had done. So there's a whole narrative that runs within the post-Cold War Russian psyche. Right. That says we were done dirt. And it's beyond the, the, the Putin extremist, you know, NATO encroachment thing. It's simply the we Russians behaved virtuously and we were not rewarded. And in fact, we suffered terribly. Right. Putin came to office. In fact, Yeltsin willed him the presidency. Yes. And when you, if you go back and read the first speech that Putin gave, I think it was New Year's Eve of 2000, of 2000, he appealed to ancient Russian history in a very oblique but fascinating way. He said, our land is rich, but there is no order. Now, that phrase is a phrase attributed to the Rus' who sent, that is the message that the Rus' supposedly sent to Ryurik, and it ends in the primary chronicle in which it's recorded, come to rule and reign over us. Right. It was the request, this is the mythology, that was nonsense, of course, that was a conquest, but the mythology was that the Rus' asked Ryurik to come and put their society in order. Putin gave his people the first two parts of that statement, and the, the third would echo in the head of anybody who was familiar with Russian history. He was positioning himself as a new Ryurik. Now, you can see that in a couple of different ways, but one of them is he was going to restore order where there wasn't any. Right. Which was not entirely untrue. Correct. Right. And the first thing that he did was to focus on restabilizing the Russian economy, which Yeltsin had not done because he fo Yeltsin focused on defending Russian democracy. And the, first, the economy went well. And then Putin began to consolidate power. And as Natalia explains, Putin's value proposition to his people became, give me your some of your freedoms and I will give you wealth. Right. And stability. And stability and order. Right. And then that began to collapse after the 2008 you know, financial collapse and the, the Russian economy starts to get bad also, and they suffer in all kinds of ways. So then he changed his value proposition and the value proposition became, give me your individual, some individual liberty, freedom limited, and I will give you greatness. Right. And so he retreated from an original position that hadn't oriented on this kind of, you know, great power, greatness. Now, I think he'd always sought that in his mind. The one that substituted this ideological vision right. for concrete benefit. Now, all of this in Putin's mind is part of justifying increasingly autocratic control over Russian society. Yes. My point to you is that this is not, this didn't happen though, because Russians expected to be ruled by an autocrat or desired to do this. But their leader made them these series of basically trades. Right. And over the course of 20 years, walk them down the path that they are now coming to the end of. You mentioned earlier that this war has broken the Russian military or the Russian army. That 
I think is a good thing, but explain how we turn that fact into a Ukrainian victory in a more broad sense. Okay, so the first thing that we need to really internalize is that we are fighting now the scenario that like U.S. European command is supposed to be settled to fight, which is the Russian attack on a on an American ally in Europe. Right. We it's just that we are fighting it forward of the NATO defensive line. Mm-hmm. And so we're not directly involved, but we're fighting that war now. Yeah. So we have the opportunity to help the Ukrainians inflict even more damage on the Russian military, which would be a really good thing to do. And it would advance our strategic interests in a whole bunch of important ways, as well as doing the right thing by Ukrainians and European security and a whole bunch of other things. Right. So what's holding us back is a negotiation that we seem to be having with ourselves on behalf of the Russians about what might or might not be escalatory. And this is a very unfortunate conversation that we're in because this seems to translate into things like it's not escalatory to give them HIMARS, but it is escalatory to give them aircraft. Well, but just to just to sort of steel man or maybe play devil's advocate, I mean, there is a doctrine of using tactical nuclear weapons for the Russian military. Okay. I there is. I, I know there's a difference between a doctrine and actually doing it in the real world, but... What's the threshold for it? Well, I apparently, my understanding is the threshold would be that if their territorial army is in significant risk of losing a a war that they started, they would use tactical nuclear weapons to take out key nodes, I suppose, of Ukraine's military infrastructure. So here's the problem. I've read the I've read the state of doctrine and the documents and all of this sort of stuff. Yeah. By the way, I mean, we're I'm 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 conceding that doctrine does not mean that they do it. Sure. No, no, no. All of that. No, that's fine. But I'm prepared. I'm prepared to accept on these terms also and say, here's the problem. You can read that doctrine and those documents to suggest that they should already have nuked us 15 times. Right. Or that they never will. Right. Okay. It's the doctrine is actually a doctrine of strategic ambiguity by design. Ah. And it is ambiguous. So the point is that there is nothing that you can point to that says, if we do X, the Russians will use nukes. As long as we don't do X, they won't. Right. Okay. Now that's just the world of international relations. So it's, I'm not right. So it's, a, so, so it's a false comfort if we say, well, this is right under the line and this is maybe over the line, that kind of thing. Yes. But it's also, I think, a false restraint yeah. on us to imagine that we dasn't do give the Ukrainians X, Y, or Z because that would trigger an escalation. Sure. I have no idea what the top secret communications or evidence are or whatever. But I, I have a very hard time imagining anything that you could see, even with all of the classified stuff that I would be prepared to take as dispositive one way or another right? on that issue. So you have to make your judgment. And my point is, I think we're being too conservative. Okay. Okay. I think that we are too preoccupied with the notion that Russian escalation or lack thereof is dependent on what systems we do or do not give the Ukrainians and in what quantities, when I don't think it is. What is it dependent on? If you, if it is dependent on anything. Well, you actually put it well. If you read the Russian doctrine in, in a certain way, you could say that if the Ukrainians actually look like they're going to finish the job of wrecking the Russian military in Ukraine and liberating the rest of their territory, that that would be an unacceptable threat to Russia and that Putin would 
might use tactical nuclear weapons to prevent it. Right. You can read it that way. Now, you then have to have a conversation about the limits of doctrine and whether you think Putin would actually make those concrete decisions. Or you could read it to say that as long as there's no direct threat to the Russian homeland, Putin is extraordinarily unlikely to engage in a nuclear escalation that he cannot be certain that he could control. Mm -hmm. Another way of putting that is you could believe that nuclear deterrence theory will continue to hold. Mm. And this is the way that I think it's important to frame this discussion. Because, you know, there's a separate question about extended deterrence and whether we think that Putin might use nuclear weapons in Ukraine, right? Which is the only thing we're talking about here right now, because no one seriously is talking about Putin using nuclear weapons against NATO at this point. Right. But even within the context of extended deterrence, we have decades worth of theory about this that's actually worked pretty well on the whole. Right. About why leaders in the position that Putin finds himself in are extremely unlikely to walk down a path of nuclear escalation short of a provocation larger than he is likely to face in Ukraine, given Ukrainian capabilities and intentions. Now, you can only talk in terms of likelihood, Mm -hmm. which is in some respects, in principle, unacceptable when you're talking about nuclear weapons. On the other hand, when you have a leader who has deliberately created a doctrine of strategic ambiguity about the use of nuclear weapons, you have no alternative but to talk in terms of likelihood. Right. So there, I think we have to say, look, the, the, it is much more likely that Putin would decide to escalate one way or another based on the flow of the campaign in Ukraine than based on the provision or denial of any specific American weapon system. And since U.S. stated policy repeatedly by the president, secretary of defense and on down is that we are intend to and are willing to help Ukrainians regain the territory that Putin has seized since February. Either look in my judgment at this point, either that's the trigger for Putin or it isn't. Mm-hmm. I think it isn't. I don't think he goes to nuclear war if the Ukrainians regain that territory. But that's the issue that Putin is staring at, not whether we're giving them HIMARS or F-16s or anything else like that. So and there's I, a lesson here for us in the West and particularly at the Pentagon and, you know, the White House, which is if you're correct, and I suspect you are, that the issue really isn't what system you give the Ukrainians. It has everything. If, if you are so if you're so worried that any likelihood of a nuclear exchange is unacceptable, then we should never have supported the Ukrainians to begin with. We should have just said, okay, you're on your own. And the fact that we haven't done that, we sort of are now already in it. And the fact that he hasn't played the nuclear card means that let's focus on winning the war. Yeah. And you also want to flip it around because there are certainly people, you could make a rational argument that says, okay, we really shouldn't be risking nuclear war of any variety. And you can make a rational argument along those lines and I don't dismiss it. I only would say then if you want to go, if you, if that's where you are, then you have to reflect on a number of corollaries, which include that nuclear powers like Russia and China can do whatever it is they choose to do. And they need only threaten to escalate and we will surrender. And when you are looking at countries like Russia and China that have stated designs on conquering their neighbors, then you have to recognize that that your answer to the question of any any risk of nuclear right. war 
is writing off Taiwan, the former Soviet space, parts of Eastern Europe, or probably other parts of Asia, and allowing those countries to do whatever they will. And that's a pretty bad choice to make. Also, I think it's a worse choice than accepting the, what I think is low risk of nuclear war. But if your position is no risk of nuclear war at all, then you have to be straightforward about what the consequence of that is. Right. You, you can't, you can't defend Ukraine and then also say that you want your, you have no risk that you want no risk. That's a real, and that's a great point to end our conversation. Fred Kagan, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I learned a lot. I hope our listeners learned a lot and I really appreciate it. I hope to have you back. Thanks so much, Eli. Good to be with you. This has been The Re-Education with Eli Lake, a nebulous production. Please find us wherever you find your podcast. And if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave a five-star review. It helps other people find the show and makes us feel really good about what we're doing.